For the rest of us, can you turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Psalms, Psalm 51. Psalm, Psalm 51. I don't know about you, but have you ever found yourself uh, so blown away by a particular sin in your life, something that you've done that you can't imagine can be forgiven? something that you've done that you wouldn't want anyone else to know, you hope that it doesn't get found out. Just in the, in the last, uh, last year, um, two pastors that I, I, I would listen to, I would download their sermons, um, one of them fell in such a way that, uh, terrible fall, his whole church kind of just crumbled. Um, afterwards, which does tell you maybe a little bit about where the church's foundation was. Uh, Another one recently fell morally in in sexual sin. And the thing about it, um, as you are watching and hearing about these men who have fallen um, in such a way, is that it has a ripple effect. Uh, We think that sin doesn't just impact us. We think it just impacts us, but it doesn't. Uh, Sin has this ripple effect, and it affects other people. And the first pastor, I told you that his whole congregation pretty much scattered. Um, As this leader was broken down, everyone else scattered. Uh, In the second case, this um, the church is now having to deal with the public issues. And it was right there. If you Google these guys' names, you would see it right there, Washington Post or whatever on Google. And the sad reality is this, that um, we live in a fallen world and that Satan is looking to destroy churches. Satan is looking to destroy witness. Our flesh is active today. Our flesh is active every single day. And sin can be rampant unless we do something about it. I want you to consider as well this, that maybe as you sit here and as we read Psalm 51, and you're probably familiar with the fact that Psalm 51 is written by a murderer and an adulterer, you may be sitting here this morning saying that Psalm 51 has nothing to do with me, right? Because I've never murdered anyone. I've never committed adultery. And that would be wrong for you to assume that this psalm is not there for you. This psalm is about us. This psalm is about those pastors who have fallen morally. Those psalm, that psalm is not only about David, it is about us. It's not only about thousands of years ago, it's about today. It is for the person today that sits here who believes that because of sin that you've done, there is great shame in your life or fear or guilt. Maybe you sit here today wondering if God could ever forgive you for what you've done. Could you ever be free for what you've done? I can't imagine to fall morally and have it on Google for everybody in the world to see. But David had it on Google of his day. His sin is so apparent that we are still talking about it thousands of years later. But we're talking about a David who didn't stay in the fall, but rose out of that fall. And that should be hope and help and freedom and forgiveness for all of us. So as we look to this psalm today, I pray that if you are struggling today with shame, if you are struggling today with guilt, if you are struggling today with fear, if you believe that it is possible that God can't possibly forgive you for what you've done, I hope you can hear hope and healing today. 
I hope you can hear that your sin can be pardoned and that you can be pure, that there is forgiveness and there is freedom there for you today if you turn to the God that David turned to, the God of our salvation. Would you read here with me? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For my transgressions and my sins are ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you desire truth in my inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquities. It's interesting that David begins this psalm, and you're probably familiar with David, right? David is this interesting character because David... We know of his great heights, and we know of the depths of David, right? The heights. David was the David who was there before Goliath. He was that young boy who put on that armor that was too big for him, and he stood in front of this giant Goliath when Israel's army was fearful and moving away from him. That was David who stood there in faith and in confidence and said, I stand in faith, and I'm going to stand against this enemy. That's the David that we remember. This is the David who became the second king in Israel. After Saul fell, David was the one who was claimed to be the man after God's own heart. This is the David that we know his heights. But then we know the David of his depths. The David that um, should have been at war with his soldiers but wasn't. The David that was not taking care of his, uh, his group and his family. The David who was out there seeing a woman bathing, and instead of diverting his eyes from her, he continued to look on her in lust. This is the same David that continued to look on her in lust and then bring his servants in and say, who is that woman? The servants say, this is Uriah's wife. You know, they're trying to give him a hint, David, this is not your wife. But that wasn't enough. David said, get her for me. And he brings this woman into his, lo- into his home. He brings this woman into his bed, and he has relations with her, which he should not have done. And as David, thinking that he could have gotten away with it, he impregnates this woman. And now he thinks he can hide his sin. He can figure out a way to get around his sin. You know the story, because David then brings her husband back from the battlefield. He says, go home to be with your wife, because maybe we can claim that this baby is your baby. In essence, that's his plan. And you could see that Uriah, you know the story, Uriah was a faithful man. He says, if my men are in battle, I'm not going to go home to my bed and my wife. And then David, figuring out, I can't make this guy do what I want. David sends this man back, which is always incredible to me if you know this story. David gave Uriah a letter to take to the commander. In that letter, it says, I want you to have Uriah killed, which is just amazing to me that David trusted in the faithfulness of Uriah enough that he was going to take this letter to the commanding general, 
And David took, Uriah took that letter to the commanding general. The letter basically said this. I want to put Uriah at the front of the battle. And then I want you to withdraw from him when the battle gets fierce so that he is struck down and killed. And that's exactly what happened. Uriah dies as a hero in battle. David, now coming to be the man who is going to come in there and do what? I'm going to marry the widow. So that now the baby that is born, that's okay. We can claim it as ours because we did it lawfully. And David thought he got away with it. We know the heights of David's life. We know the depths of David's life. Maybe that's you. Maybe there have been such great heights in your life. Maybe there are great depths. Maybe you have sat in a church time after time, and you've heard the gospel of God's free grace, and you sit there today thinking that it is not possible for God to be able to forgive me. Maybe you're sinning right now today. Maybe you've been involved in some activity right now today that you don't possibly believe that you could be free from. And what David says to you is that you can be free. He starts by verse 1. He says, have mercy on me, O God. It's interesting that David, who wrote 73 psalms out of the 150 that we have, he wrote 70-plus psalms. David did not rely on his resume. He could have said, I am the author of Scripture. He didn't do that. I'm the one that took down uh, uh, Goliath. He didn't do that. He didn't rely on his resume. He didn't rely on his experience. He didn't rely on his accomplishments. He relied on what? Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, my version says steadfast love. Your version may say unfailing love. I like that. His love is so relentless, it's unfailing. He loves his believers. He loves them so much that no matter where you run to, he is always there. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercies. Mercies there means great compassion. David is appealing to mercy and he's appealing to grace. He's basically saying, I don't deserve what I am asking you to grant me today. I don't deserve forgiveness. I don't deserve freedom. I deserve condemnation. But David is crying out. He says, blot out my transgressions. You know, it's funny, this word transgressions, he puts it in the plural transgressions are this idea of crossing a boundary line. It, it is offending authority. Authority says, here's the line, and I go over that line. That's what transgressions are. It's where the law has been placed out there, the line has been drawn, and you willfully say, I'm going over that line. He puts that in the plural. He says that, you know what, there have been so many times that I have willfully strayed across your boundary. I have invaded, as one author put it, forbidden territory. He's done that many, many times. So have you. So have I. But then he goes in verse 2, and he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. He puts it in the singular. Now, why did he go from transgressions, plural, to iniquity, singular? I think here's the reason. You know what iniquity means? Iniquity means twisted, distorted, out of order. What David is saying is that the external sins that are happening in my life are a byproduct of something that is happening deep within my iniquitous heart, that I am twisted inside, that my heart, my flesh is wrong. There's something wrong. It's distorted. It's offline. Twisted, misshapen, crooked, shaped in sin. 
singular. Then he goes, he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, singular again. Now, if transgression means to cross over a line, invade enemy territory, and iniquity means that I am crooked, I am twisted, sin means to miss the mark. And what David is saying is this. What I did by committing sexual sin with Bathsheba and what I did by murdering Uriah is heinous and terrible and a capital punishment. But that's not the only problem here. The problem is that my sins external, my transgressions external are because I am a sinner at heart. That's the greatest problem that I have. That I have a flesh that is bent away from God. And what we tend to do as human beings is that we want to kind of look good on the outside, right? We want to fix ourselves up. And so what we do is we fix the transgressions, the outside acts, but we fail to recognize that unless there is change internally, there's not going to be no real change in your life. So you could fix yourself up externally. You could stop the words. You can change the external actions. But David recognized that was not enough. I did this heinous act externally because there is something heinous that is internally happening with me. David, very honestly, could have blamed. He could have said, you know what? She had no right to be sitting out there butt naked in front of me. It's her fault. God, actually, it's your fault because she is gorgeous and you created her gorgeous and you put her in my eyesight. He could have done that. He didn't do that. He says in verse 3, For I know my transgressions and my sins are ever before me. You know, sin is incredible. Sin is this thing that uh, we don't like to talk about, but the reality is this, sin destroys and David sees that sin destroys several things. The first thing he sees is that it plagues his mind. He says here in verse 3, I know my transgressions. As you sit here today, for some of you, you see yourself by the sin that you've done or the sins that you continue to do. You label yourself a whatever, an adulterer, a murderer, an addict, a thief, a whatever. You label yourself that way, and you see your transgressions. Some of you have done such a heinous sin that you can't get it out of your mind. It's just right there, and every day I wake up, and I see that act that I did, and I don't know why I did it. That was what David was struggling with. He says, I know my sin. The sin is plaguing me. It's plaguing my mind. It's not just an intellectual idea that I've committed this sin. It is just tormenting me. It's ever before me. I can't seem to run away from it. I can't seem to get away from the shame or the guilt. I can't seem to shake it. Have you ever felt that way? I know I have. For humanity, what we tend to do with our shame is we tend to cover it up. Shame is this idea of being exposed. Three of the results of the garden fall was that after Adam and Eve sinned, they felt shame, fear, and guilt. You've heard me say that before. Those are three elements that I see in the counseling office every day. 
Shame means that I've been exposed. I'm standing here and you get to gawk at my sin. And I'm afraid that you're going to reject me. I can't imagine that you would ever accept me after you knew what I've done. Fear is the second thing that came out of the garden fall. We're afraid of judgment. We feel no power. We are afraid that we're not going to be loved. So what we do is we run and hide. That's what we tend to do with our sin. And then there's a third thing that comes out of the garden fall is guilt. I feel guilt. And what do we do? We tend to blame one another. So most of us, when we sin, and you could see it if you watch, in fact, the one pastor, what surprised me was that he was allowed to speak after his fall, and he got up and he spoke, and he basically talked about all the bad things that other people had done to him. It's no wonder his church fell apart. Because there was something that was missing. He was missing verse 4, which we'll get to in a moment. He was missing that sin was ultimately against God. He saw the sin as ultimately against himself. And that's what we do. Because in our shame, what do we do? We try to cover up our sin. In our fear, we tend to run and hide. In our guilt, we tend to blame somebody else. The circumstances, my heredity, my past. And God is saying to you through David that sin will plague you. But sin is not only plaguing your mind. Second, sin is against God ultimately. It's an attack on God. It says in verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, I don't know about you, but I just listed out all the sins that David had committed. He committed um, sin by looking lustfully at Bathsheba. He implicated his servants in it. He um, killed Uriah. He implicated his army in his murder. He sinned about, against a ton of people. So how can David say that against you and only you have I sinned? Well, here's the reason, I think. I commit a crime against you. I could treat you wrongly, but sin, the Bible defines as breaking God's law. Sin is ultimately vertical. God is the one that is the author of law. He is the standard bearer so that when I go over that line, I am failing God first and foremost. And I think that's the reason why so many people continue to be plagued with shame, fear, and guilt is because they try to deal with it horizontally, not vertically. David clearly committed crimes against humanity, but he sinned against God. And in sinning against God, he attacked the very character of God and what he realized was this. When he was doing his sin with Bathsheba, he wasn't even thinking about God. Just like you and, you and I. When we sin, we don't think about God at that moment in time. We're thinking about what I want. David was looking for what he wanted at that moment in time. But then he started to think, now, God saw what I did. You remember that shame element of being exposed? I am now being exposed before God. God has seen everything that I've done, every word that I spoke, every action that I've done, even the attitude of my heart. God saw it all. And it's evil. And he says here that God is justified in his words and blameless in his judgment. Sin plagues the mind. 
Sin is attack against God, but sin deserves judgment. I think the other reason as I sit and counsel with people at times, we tend to, we live in a society today, um, and it's sad to say that maybe my profession has helped to bear this out, um, that we, I don't even want to put we in there. The profession at times will give people the impression that their past gives them a reason for the sins that they do today. That because you were hurt in the past, that justifies what you do. It doesn't. And so what David is getting at here is this. God, if I were standing in your court today and the sentence was laid out, if you said condemned, you're just. I don't deserve heaven. I don't deserve your mercy. I don't deserve your forgiveness. I don't deserve freedom. I don't deserve it. In Romans, Paul talks about the fact that every mouth will be stopped. That when humanity stands before God, there's no excuses. We got nothing. David says, I have nothing to bring before you. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your grace I cling. Verse 5, he tells us about the source of sin. He says that the source of sin comes from here. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. There's been a lot of debate about what he meant here. Um, Did it mean that his mother had done some terrible act, sinful act, and that's what he was born? No, that's not what he's talking about. What he is saying is this. He is saying, not only was I sinful at the time of my birth, I had a nature of sin in my life even at my conception. That at his very conception, the nature of sin was there in his life, and he was guilty. And he says that I came into this world in iniquity, that singular sin, that bent principle we were talking about before, And in sin did my mother conceive me. It was not in the act of conception, but it was in the result of the conception. I am a sinner. Here's the truth. You, me, we sin because we are what? We're sinners. We were born that way, crooked and bent. We didn't come that way because of environment or because of circumstances. We became that way because that's who we are. And if it stayed that way, God is right in judging all of us. We're children of Adam. He could have judged us all. But what God did for you and what God did for me was utterly amazing. That God, in all his right, could have judged you completely guilty and sentenced you to an eternity away from him. But what he did for you and what he did for me was he offered us the gospel of his free grace. Not free to us. Free to us. Not free because it cost his son his life. One author put it this way. I'm more sinful in appear in I'm sorry, I'm more sinful in reality than I am in appearance. I like that. That if you look at me on the outside, oh, he's a he's a pastor. He's not that sinful. You don't even know me. <laughs> Ask my family. Tim Keller put it this way. He said, the gospel says that you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe. 
but you are more accepted and loved than you could have ever dared hope for. Isn't that beautiful? I don't know, it makes me cry. Verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in my inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. You see that David is not satisfied with the external change. He wants change deep in his heart. And then he gets into some ceremonial things. He takes something that happened in the, in the temple, in the tabernacle, the tabernacle at his time, and he wants to show you, he's using this external symbol, and he says, this is what I want in my heart. Now, what you would do in this tabernacle is that um, an animal would be killed, its blood would be spilled, and they would use this branch, a hyssop branch, and the hyssop branch would be dipped into the blood and water mixture, and it would be sprinkled on you. And it was symbolic of the fact that someone deserved to die for your sin. And God was gracious to allow this animal at this time to bear your sin for you. But an animal can't take away humanity's sin. That hyssop branch was looking forward to what? Christ. That Jesus Christ, as he hung on a bloody cross, was willing to take your guilt, your shame, as he was exposed naked on that cross, your guilt as he was condemned wrongly by others, but God placed his, your guilt upon him. And the fear, he took that all upon himself for you and for me if you trust in him. And so David can cry out, purge me with him so that I can be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken, God, rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out my transgressions or my iniquities. Can you bear with me for a moment? I see a series of three things here, a series of threes. Go back to verse 1. He talks about God as being what? Steadfast in love and abundant in mercy. Okay, great. And then he talks about a God who justifies, who sees his sin. Now, how does he talk about himself? Three things. He talks about his transgressions in verse 2, uh, verse 1. He talks about his iniquities in verse 2. And then he talks about his sin in verse um, 2 and following. So God who's merciful, abundant in grace and compassion and loving. We see himself as transgressing, iniquitous and sinful. But then he prays for three things. He prays that God would blot out his sin. You saw that in verse 1. He prayed that God would wash him, verse 2. And he prayed that God would cleanse him in verse 2. So God, he sees God as a merciful God who's a right judge, but he prays that God would pour his steadfast love upon him. He sees his transgressions, he sees his iniquity, he sees his sin, and he cries out that his sin would be blotted out. Blotted out is kind of like expunged. I don't know if you've ever had a juvenile record, but um, for some of us who have done something wrong in our juvenile times, there was a record that was placed there. And then what normally happens is if you do right by the court, you do right by society, they will expunge your record. Basically, it will be like you didn't commit that act. They assume that you were a young child and you did something wrong and you weren't thinking. And now as you grow up, you will do right. 
And if you do right, it will be expunged. That's what David is saying. Blot out my transgression. I want it out of the book. He says, wash me. Doesn't, don't just wash me once. I want you to wash me like you agitate this thing. Get the stain out of my life. And then cleanse me, Lord, so that I can come into your presence and commune with you. Verse 10. He moves from a prayer of restoration to a prayer of renewal. Create in me a clean heart, O God. He's crying out for a clean heart, a new heart. As David has said, and as the scriptures, if you read it, say, that humanity... Who we are as people is what we are in the inside out. It's a heart. Our heart internally is the internal you. It's the driving force behind what you do. That David's heart desired something more than God. It desired his pleasures to be sought in Bathsheba. So what he wants right now is a heart that's different, a clean heart. But he doesn't just pray for a clean heart. In verse 11, he prays for continued fellowship. He says, cast me not away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. One of the elements that I find with people who struggle with shame that have been exposed for the world to see is the fear that people are going to reject them when they see it. When they see this person's sin, they're going to move back from that person. And that's what David is fearing right now, that God, when you see my sin in all of it, that you want to step back from me. And David cries out, please, Lord, don't just give me a renewed heart, but I want continued, sustained, constant, nonstop, unrelenting, persistent communion with you. But I don't just want a renewed heart. I don't just want you to give me continued fellowship with you. I want to have restored joy. Verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Here's the truth. David grieved over his sin. And in the fact that he grieved over his sin, it was a sure sign that the Holy Spirit hadn't left him. One of the great gifts that God gives humanity for those that have been enlivened by the Holy Spirit is that you have a conviction of sin. And if you are feeling the weight of your sin this morning, that is a sure sign to me that there is some life that is there. I gave uh, an illustration that I heard once of putting a 100-pound weight on a corpse. What does it feel? Nothing. It's dead. Now, if you enliven that corpse, what does it start to feel? It starts to feel the weight. So if you're feeling the weight of your sin today, praise the Lord because God has given you that conviction. Now you need to turn to Christ. He is pointing you out your sin. Now you need to go to the Savior. He is showing you your guilt. Now you need to turn to grace. And that's what David did here. David ended the psalm in the last seven verses talking about service. God, you've pardoned me. I pray that you have purified me from the inside out. You've renewed me. You've sustained me. Now empower me to serve you. I love this about David. David was the, the reason why we're reading this psalm today is because David wrote it down for you to read. 
He didn't hide it. You know, most of us, me, I know me, I'm tempted that when I've sinned, I want to hide it. I don't want other people to know. David didn't just hide, he didn't hide it. He wrote it down for it to be a song that was going to be sung in church for generations. And you could tell that there's something amazingly changed in his heart. He says, teach me, I will teach transgressors your ways because I'm a transgressor. And sinners will return to you, David said. Deliver me from my blood guiltiness. Now he starts to get to the murder. I'm guilty for murder. I deserve to die. Oh, God, you're the God of my salvation. This is, the cl- this is the furthest he has been. He has kind of talked about God as far off. I need you. Now he's saying you're my God, my salvation. He starts to say that I'm going to sing aloud of your righteousness. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For if you delighted in sacrifices, if it was a bunch of animals you wanted, God, I'd bring them all. He says, I don't want, I know you don't want that. What you want is not animals that have been killed. What you want is a sacrifice of a broken and contrite heart. See, David now could come into the worship service and truly worship God. Because in his shame before he was hiding and covering it up, in his fear he was hiding and avoiding, in his shame, in his guilt he was blaming somebody else. Now David, it's been freed. Have you ever been there? When, you've, when your sin has been exposed, it just seems freeing. I don't have to run any longer. I don't have to hide. We cannot, by shame or contrition or remorse, or regret, or for sorrow, bring back the dead that we've killed. We cannot, by our contrition, remorse, regret, sorrow, restore the purity of the one that we have seduced. We cannot, by our shame, or contrition, or remorse, or regret, or sorrow, bring faith to those that are now skeptics because of my fall. But what we can do this author said, so we can restrain others from sin. We can bring much benefit to the world, and we can tell of what God has done amazingly in our lives. I want you to consider some lessons from David before we leave. The first lesson I want you to consider is this. No one is too holy to fall. These two pastors that I listened to I would download the podcast of their sermons, and in a moment's act, their their ministry is gone. But I can tell you, it wasn't just a momentary act. It was an iniquitous heart that led to these momentary acts, but their, their ministry is gone, at least for today. No one is too holy to fall. The second lesson I want you to consider is this. Do you have somebody in your life that holds you accountable? Do you have somebody in your life that will call you out when you sin? That will stick their finger in your face and say, you're the one, as Nathan had. And how do you respond to the person that sticks their finger in your face and saying, you're the one that sinned? Do you try to cover it up in shame? Do you try to run and hide in fear? Do you try to blame in guilt? Or, as David did, in humility, I'm the man. 
snow and is too holy not to fall? Are you humble when people reprove you? David also teaches us that there's horror to sin. It seems pretty horrendous to commit to sleep with someone else's wife, and it's pretty horrendous to murder, but David recognized that the horror of sin is that sin impacts his mind, it attacks his relationship with God, and it's a byproduct of what's going on in his life and heart. That's true for all of us here in this room. David tells us also that uh, we need to make confession and repentance, maybe even publicly. In James, it says, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. Do you actually talk to someone and share with them the fact that you have sinned and done wrong? But this is the one lesson that I want you to hear. There is no sin too great that God can't forgive. There is no sin too great that God cannot pardon There is no filth so deep that God cannot bring purity. There is no sin too great that he cannot forgive. There is no enslavement too great that he cannot free. We have a God who is greater than all our sin. Would you give me one moment? I had this hymn, these two hymns going through my head this week. I just want to read the hymns to you, and then we'll close. I love this one. This one I probably want at my funeral. Man of Sorrow, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, In my place condemned, he, Christ, stood. He sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God is he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven he's exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. When he comes, O glorious King, all is ransomed home to bring. Then anew a song we will sing. Hallelujah, what a Savior. This is the other one I love. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount I poured, There was the blood of the lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. Sin and despair like sea willows, uh, waves cold. Threaten the soul in infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. We cannot avail to wash it away. Look, there's a flowing crimson, blood-soaked tide. Whiter than snow, you may be today. And then last line, marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed to all who believe. 
you who are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that is greater than any of your sins. Today, if you don't know him, turn to him. He is the answer to your sin. He's the savior. He's the answer to your guilt. He offers you grace. And for those of you who do know him, like David, David knew God. He was afraid that day God was going to leave him, but he knew he clung to the God of mercy and of love and forgiveness. Lord, I pray today